Now, if you have a Bible, uh, I want to grab that this morning. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 is where we'll be, uh, for those of you online or in the room here this morning. Uh, we're going to be taking one week uh, to take a break from our Life of David series, which we'll pick back up again next week. Uh, and we're going to do something this morning that we have planned to do for a, a long time here. Uh, and what we're planning on doing this morning is we're planning on talking about what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this nation. Now, now of course, each, two, or each year, uh, July 4th and coming up this Tuesday, uh, we'll, we'll pause and stop and celebrate and remember uh, and think about our nation. There will be barbecues and fireworks shows and things going on in your neighborhood and all sorts of wonderful things. And as we approach that day, we thought it would be good for us to take a moment to think about what it means for us to be followers of Jesus living in the United States of America. And here's the reason why. I want to make two observations this morning. The first is simply that we do not follow Jesus in a vacuum. Meaning we don't follow Jesus in theory or in some idea or in some book or in some kind of fantasy world. We don't follow Jesus in a vacuum where it just doesn't matter where we are. Listen, we follow Jesus in a context. In a context. It's the similar if you've grown up in church or been around church for a while, you've heard preachers like me say, well, the context of this passage is this. And at that time, this is how they lived. At that time, this is what was going on in their culture. And the same is true for every one of us. Whether you recognize it or not, you live and breathe and follow Jesus in a context. And I won't speak for everyone, but I'll speak for the vast majority of people in this room this morning and the vast majority of people listening online. The context you follow Jesus in is the 21st century and as an American citizen. Now, I know for some of you, maybe you're visiting from other places or listening from all over the world, and I believe this sermon will apply just as much to you in your context. But for those of us who are American citizens living in the 21st century, we follow Jesus in that context. And the way we follow him is shaped and impacted by the context of what's going, around, going on around us. So this morning, I want to try to answer one simple question. And the simple question is this, how do we follow Jesus in our nation? How do we, as followers of Jesus, stay faithful to the call of Christ in our nation? And as it turns out, the New Testament has something to say to us about this. We're not the first people to ask this question. We're not the first people to wrestle with how do we stay faithful to Jesus in our context. And I believe Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, has something to say to us this morning, directed by God's Spirit, as we think about this question, how do we follow Jesus in our nation? So again, if you have your Bible, Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 is where we're going to start. It says these words. It says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Verse 18. For as I've often told you and before, before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame, their mind is set on earthly things. So here's how Paul begins the discussion and really where we'll begin this morning. It's by reflecting on the reality, Paul points out that there are certain people who it says here in this last sentence, set their mind on earthly things. Like in other words, there is a way of living in this world does, that does not acknowledge God, does not acknowledge eternity, does not acknowledge the creator, but rather just lives in the creation as if that's all there was. That your entire life, your entire being is just caught up in the things around you, never once recognizing the God who created you. And here's what Paul says. There are a group of people who live in this kind of way where it's all about the created things. And it tells us in verse 19 that their destiny is destruction. 
So in other words, there's a group of people who live as if God doesn't exist. Their destiny is destruction. And then Paul goes on to tell us why they're living in that kind of way. And here's what he says in verse 18. It is because they live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Like in other words, Paul is not going to flinch or move back from identifying that there are certain people in this world who live as enemies of God, who live as enemies of the cross of Christ, that they live in such a way that is shameful and yet they glory in that shame. They live in such a way that is sinful and yet they're proud of their sin and not trying to move away from it. And as I describe this, I just wonder for you, if you would just start to think about the people, the individuals, what we see in this nation, and wonder if that resonates with you at all. Like, if you look around, you know people like this. You've seen people like this on television. There are people in our nation who we call Americans alongside us who live in such a way that their glory is their shame, that they live in open rebellion and sin against the God of the universe. And now we'll just take a moment to just honestly assess and reflect inside of ourselves. I'll share for me that sometimes what I see on television, what I see in the media or social media, when I see people who are just living in such a way that their glory is their shame, that they're openly walking in things God calls sin, like sometimes I see that and I see the way they're just openly celebrating sin and it makes me angry. Do you ever feel angry? I just feel that sometimes. And I just want to identify that sometimes you feel angry. Sometimes that rage bubbles up in me. Sometimes for me, I see what's going on in the world and how contrary it is to how God describes human life, how contrary it is to God's way as described in the scriptures. And it fills me with anger and it fills me with rage. And yet what I want to identify this morning is something powerful that Paul says in this text. It's challenging to me, as I've admitted this morning, that it fills me with anger. It should challenge you if you feel filled with anger when you see how people live in our country. I want to point out what Paul says. He says here, I've told you often as before, and then he tells them again with tears. Like in other words, what so often happens for me is I see people sinning and rebelling openly against God. Their glory is their shame, and I am filled with rage and anger and contempt. Paul, on the other hand, sees these people and he is filled with tears because he knows that they could have better. See, Paul here, writing under the direction of the Spirit of God, is reflecting to us the heart of our God. And the heart of our God is not filled with rage and indignation and anger and madness and just all of this. It is filled with tears because God knows that they can have so much better. See, again, I think Paul is reflecting to us in this moment, God's view toward those people we see on the news, we see in social media, we see out in the world celebrating in their sins. See, listen, God's response to sin and rebellion is not contempt and indignation. Like God is going to call it sin. He's going to call it rebellion. He's going to say that there will be a day where they stand in judgment before a holy God. His wrath will be poured out. And yet God's present posture toward the world is not one of contempt and indignation. His present posture toward the world is one that's found in John 3, 16, where it says, So God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Like, in other words, God's response to sin and rebellion, to people glorying in their shame, is not just contempt and indignation. His God's response to sin and rebellion is compassion and invitation. And that compassion says, I see you as a sinner and I sent my son Jesus to die for you that you might be brought into the family of God. And the invitation is that if you call on the name of the Lord, repent and turn from your sin, you will be saved and made a child of God. 
This is the heart of God reflected in Paul. As he looks around the world and sees how people are living, it's not just this anger and contempt and looking down upon people. Rather, it is Paul filled with compassion because he knows it could be so much more for them. Uh, Let me take this moment to speak to you. If you feel like maybe that's you, you're the person in this room who's been running from God walking in your sin, rebelling against him. Maybe you spent your entire life or most of your life running as far as you can, as fast as you can from God. Here's the incredible promise. Our God sees you with compassion and here's the invitation that if you would plant your foot in the ground and repent and turn around, you would recognize that God never stopped chasing after you. He sees you. He created you. He loves you. And he wants you to be in his family. His compassion allowed him to send his son Jesus to die on the cross and rise from the dead that you might be saved and the invitation is to call upon the name of the Lord today. If you don't know Jesus, if you've been running from God, the great invitation of our God is that he is filled with compassion and love and patience and mercy and grace for you and will receive you if you come to him. And then for those of you who call yourselves followers of Jesus like I do, here is the reminder for us The reminder is that the posture of God is one of compassion and invitation. The next time we see something on the news that makes us angry, the next time we see people sinning in such a way where their glory is their shame, this should be our posture as well. In fact, I think this posture is evidence that I am growing to be more like Jesus, that I'm living and loving more like him. I'll say it this way, that I know I'm becoming more like Jesus when my reaction to sin moves from contempt to compassion. And that's the invitation for us this morning. It's an invitation that will play itself out in your life in the next 48 to 72 hours, I promise. Can I tell you this? There's another scandal coming. I don't know what the scandal is. It's just coming. Don't we know that? In the next few days, there will be something on the news you are outraged about. There will be something that someone does or someone says or on the 4th of July, you see something and it pops up on the news and it just makes you angry. And you will know that you are growing to be more like Jesus when it moves from just this outrage and anger and just completely flying off the handle to having compassion for people who are far from God and wanting them to know the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that you have experienced in your own life. Paul begins by looking around the world and saying, there are people who are enemies of God. They're living in their sin. And yet let's be filled with tears for them, wanting them to come to know the saving love of Jesus Christ. It goes on this way in verse 20. Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. So so Paul is going to make this claim for himself, and this is true of all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, that we are citizens of heaven, that all the rights and privileges and responsibilities of heaven belong to us as citizens of that place. And yet here's what's really interesting about Paul. He claims clearly in Philippians 3.20 that he is a citizen of heaven, and yet twice explicitly in the book of Acts he claims citizenship to a different place. Hear this in Acts chapter 16. It says, Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. Again, in Acts chapter 22, Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. So on the one hand, you've got Paul saying, I am a citizen of heaven. And yet on the other hand, twice in the book of Acts, you've got Paul saying, I am a citizen of Rome. He's not denying one or the other. And you almost want to say, Paul, which is it? Are you a citizen of heaven? Or are you a citizen of Rome? And I think if Paul were to answer us, he would say the answer is both. He's a dual citizen. And that is true for every single one of us as well, that we are dual citizens of heaven and of earth, that we are dual citizens for the vast majority of us of the United States of America and citizens of heaven. 
And this morning, what I want to simply reflect on as we approach July 4th is seven implications of dual citizenship. Seven thoughts, seven implications, seven things for us to think about when it comes to our dual citizenship of heaven and of earth. Here's the first one. The first implication is our identity. It is two statements that are equally true, that I am an American and I am a child of God. I am an American and I am a child of God. Now when it comes to identity, it's a strange thing in our life. That when it comes to identity, we don't actually have to choose one thing or the other. All of our identities kind of blend together in our life seamlessly. But for example, I am the son of Vern and Nancy Howard. I am the husband to Danielle Howard, and I am the father to Grace, Noah, and Hope Howard. So I'm a son, I am a father, and I am a husband, and all three of those things go together. I don't have to pick one. I don't have to exclude the others. There aren't certain moments where I'm a son, and certain moments where I'm a husband, and certain moments where I'm a father. They all fit together as one. And so the invitation for us is to not say, well, I'm either an American or I'm a child of God, but to say, I am both. And both of those things fit together. There's a question I want to address when it comes to this identity. When we say we're an American or we're proud to be an American or great to live in this place, the question I want to address this morning is simply this one. Can a Christian have a greater affection for their nation than all other nations? Can a Christian living in America, an American citizen, have a greater love and affection for America, for the United States of America, than all other nations? And maybe this question has never bothered you. Maybe you've never thought about it. But I'll tell you, for a lot of Christians, this bothers them. Because when I read the Bible, I see at least two things. The first is God's ultimate concern for the entire world. God is the God over all nations and all peoples and all kings and all kingdoms. There's this global reach of God. So sometimes we feel like, am I supposed to have a love for my nation or for every nation? And then the second reason this comes up is because I've read my Bible back to front a number of times and I can't find America referenced anywhere in here. And so I start to wrestle with this question. Am I allowed to have a greater affection for this nation than every other nation? And I want to answer that question by giving you three other questions to think about with this subject. Here's the first question. Can a Christian have a greater affection for their mother than all other mothers? Can they have a greater affection for their mom than all other moms? Because I'll tell you, I, I, I have like a great love and respect and honor for moms. If you are a mom, you have an incredible role in your children's life. I believe it's an honor and a privilege and shapes the next generation. I, I love the, the, there's so many amazing mothers here in this church. But I got to tell you, I love my mom more than your mom. I do. I love Nancy Howard more than I love your mom, and I'm sure she is a lovely lady. And you love your mom more than my mom, right? So is it okay to love my mother more than all the other mothers? I think the answer is yes. Second question, can a Christian have greater affection for their child than all other children? And it's think about this, like last week, 700 kids were here at VBS, and I love that, because we're empowering the next generation, we're telling them about Jesus, but you would better believe out of those 700 kids, I, as a dad, was walking around taking pictures of my children. I was all up in their business. You know why? I love my kids more than your kids. I do, and you love your kids more than my kids. And I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. I think God has given us a certain responsibility to order our loves, and I love my kids. I love all children. I want God to know all of them. I want them to be reached. And yet my kids have a special place in my heart. Here's the third question. Can a Christian have a greater affection for their church than all other churches? And again, I think the answer is yes. I drive around town. There are churches near my house. I, I love them. I celebrate their ministry. But all I know about them is their name. Sometimes I know who the pastor is, but really I don't know the people there. I know you people. 
I love you people. I love this place here. I love the affection and the fellowship we have here. So it's not that I don't like those other churches. It's not that I'm down on them. It's just that I love this place because these are my people. And so again, the question, can a Christian love a certain thing more than all the other certain things? I think the answer is yes. So when it comes to our nation, can a Christian have more affection for the United States of America than all the other nations? I think the answer is yes. And that's not to the exclusion. That's not because we hate the other nations. It's not because we're down on them. It's because God has chosen in his sovereignty to place us here. I want you to think about the words of Jesus in the Great Commission, where he says in Matthew 28, therefore go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. This is the Great Commission. And I want to observe that what Jesus tells us to do is to make disciples of all nations, of all the nations. Now, sometimes when we hear this verse, we think this means go to other places in the world and make disciples. So we think international mission trips, which our church does so well. Even this week, we'll send out more teams. There's another team going to Dominican Republic, a high school group this week. Uh, So many short-term trips going out this summer. Uh, And yet, here's what I believe. Short-term trips are meaningful but most of our time and energy and affection and resources and focus are gonna be right here making disciples in this nation. And here's what I'm convinced of. If we are going to make disciples in this nation, we must have a love and an affection and a care for the well-being of this nation. I'll put it like the opposite way for you to make a point, that it is impossible to disciple a nation if you disdain that nation if you detest that nation. It is impossible for you to make disciples of a nation if you don't actually like those people. Like imagine this, imagine if you told me that you were going to go be a missionary to France. I said, you're gonna go to France and be a missionary? He said, yes, I'm going to France, but I gotta tell you, I hate the French people and I hate their history and I hate their food and I hate their culture. I hate everything about the country, but I'm gonna go tell them how much God loves them. I would say you may want to rethink your missionary endeavor because I don't think you'll be a very effective missionary to a people that you don't even like. And the same goes for us in this nation. To have a special kind of affection and care and interest in this nation is not some bad thing. In fact, I think it's required for us. If we're going to make disciples of this nation, we must have an affection and a care for and a love for this nation. Is it okay for a Christian to love their nation uh, uh, more than every other nation? And the answer, I think, is yes. I want to show you number two here, and that's attention. Attention is this, that I notice what's going on in my nation, but I fix my eyes on my God. I notice what's going on in my nation, but I fix my eyes on my God. Meaning, if we're going to be citizens of the United States of America, we need to be aware of what's going on. So we should have a basic understanding of what's going on in government and culture and the economy. But we should never be Christians who are so closed off that we just have no clue what's going on. And yet at the same time, what we want our heart and our mind and our affection and our attention to be drawn toward ultimately are the things of God. And my greatest concern for many Christians living in 2023 is they get this exactly flipped. So what happens for far too many Christians is that they get obsessed with the politics of our nation, they get obsessed with the economy, they get obsessed with the news, obsessed with everything that's going on, and they're so talking about it, and they know every little scandal that happened, and they know every little in and out of everything, but they barely glance at God and his word. So they could tell you everything that happened in the news this week, but they couldn't tell you much about what they read in the Bible this week. And my burden for us as dual citizens is that we would glance at what's going on in our nation, be aware but that we would gaze at our God, that that we would have an awareness and understanding of what's going on in our world, and yet we would be obsessed by our heart and our mind and our affection on our God, that we would be those types of people. Now, the pushback to that sometimes is, Brian, if we're so obsessed with God and what he's doing, are we going to miss out on opportunities to change our nation? 
Oliver Wendell Holmes put it this way years ago, that some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. That's the pushback. They're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. And I need to tell you something. I have never in my life met a person like this. <laughs> never once. I have never met someone and been like, you are too much like Jesus. You're no good here. Not, I've never met someone. I'm like, man, you, are, you live and love so much like Jesus. Back it off a touch, okay? Like, I have never met that person. Here's what I found. I have found that the people who are so obsessed with the Lord and what he has for them, whose heart and affection and attention are so much on God, are powerful agents of change in this world. C.S. Lewis says it this way in Mere Christianity. He says, if you read through history, you'll find the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. So here's the invitation for us. Glance at what's going on in the nation. Be aware. Stay on top. Know what's going on in the world, in our country, in the news. Know all of that. But gaze at our God. Be obsessed with our God. Know his word. Trust in his purposes. Know his promises. That's what it looks like to be a dual citizen. Here's number three. Number three is security. It's that I have a gratitude for the security found in my nation but I have confidence from the security found in my God. So again, on the one hand, we wanna be grateful for the security we have in this nation. We wanna not take for granted the fact that we live in an incredibly prosperous and secure nation that most people throughout human history have not even gotten close to. It is easy to take that for granted, especially if you grew up here, but most of human history would do anything to have the kind of security and stability and, and prosperity that we experience here in this nation. And we should be a grateful people. So if over the next few days you're asked or feel invited to or have a desire to thank those who make that possible, whether it be those in our military or first responders, those who help make that happen, that is entirely appropriate for a Christian to do, to be filled with gratitude for the security found in our nation. And yet here's the great danger. The great danger is that we are so secure, so prosperous, that things seem so stable that we actually begin to put our confidence in the United States of America or we put our confidence in the government, or we put our confidence in the military or in the first responders. And here's what we need to do as Christians. We need to be grateful for the security we have, but our confidence going forward is always in our God. It's always in our God. That we become a people who says, look, I'm grateful for the security we have, but if everything falls apart, if something goes sideways in my life and my family, if something somehow falls apart or starts to crumble, my confidence and my hope is never in my nation. It's always in my God. This is why Psalm chapter 20 famously says these words, that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Calvary, may this always be said of us, that we are a people who trust in the name of the Lord our God above all things and over all things. Here's number four. Number four is perspective. It's an important thing of how we see the world. I don't see my faith through the lens of my nation. I see my nation through the lens of my faith. I don't see my faith through the lens of my nation. In other words, it doesn't go my nation first and then I think about my faith. It's always my faith. It's always my God. It's always my Jesus I look to first. And then I understand the world from his perspective. And again, what can be so dangerous for so many Christians living in our age and in our time is that you can get so wrapped up in the things of our nation that you can start to actually analyze Jesus or his church or the teachings of the Bible through the lens of our nation or through the lens of your politics. So what you start to do is you start to assess the theological claims of the Bible based on your view of how politics or how our nation should work rather than inverting it where it should be. You should see what the Bible has to say and assess our nation based on that. And here's how you can know, here's how you can be confident 
that you are assessing our nation by the lens of faith and our scriptures and our God rather than the other way around, the way you can know is if from time to time or maybe most of the time you feel a discomfort living here. You feel a discomfort in this world. You don't feel like you perfectly fit anywhere. Like, let me ask you four questions about this discomfort this morning. The first is this. Do you feel any discomfort with the economics of our nation? Any discomfort with how money is spent? Any discomfort with the spending or materialism or consumerism or the debt in our nation? When you look around at how people spend money, when you look around at how money flows in our nation, uh, about how wealth is distributed and the poor, when you think about all of those things, do you just feel like perfectly good, no problem, it's all awesome, wonderful, or do you feel a discomfort with that? Because I would suggest that if you feel no discomfort with the way money works in this nation, you are seeing money through the eyes of this nation into your faith rather than the other way around. We should feel a discomfort. We should look around and say, no, 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 in some way, we should be able to critique how the economy and how money flows and how God would actually see that. Number two, do you feel a discomfort with the culture of our nation? With the music and the television shows and, and the style and the fashion and everything that happens, do you, just, do you just feel comfortable? Do you feel good? Do you feel like you fit in? Sometimes I talk to young Christians and they're like, I just don't feel like I fit in. I go, that's great news. That's great news because this culture is not perfectly Jesus. And so what we want to do is we want to assess the culture through the lens of faith, not the other way around. Listen, number three, do you have a discomfort with the ideology of our nation? Do you feel a discomfort with the ideologies of our nation, the philosophies, the ideas that get passed around? I'll give you one example if you're struggling to think of one. Uh, you ever heard or, or starting to pick up the idea nowadays it's a new ideology? And here's the basic ideology. Um, if you and I don't agree on everything, we can't be friends and my job is to destroy you. You ever felt that from time to time? You're like, if we don't agree perfectly on everything, it's not that we'll agree to disagree, it's that I will be filled with rage and contempt and want your destruction. And that is an ideology that's just passed around. And if you look at that and go, you know, that just doesn't seem like the Jesus way, you're on track to be following him. Why? Because we should have a discomfort with the way people think and process the world and the ideology of our nation. We should not buy in full force to anything. And then final question, do you feel discomfort with the politics of our nation? Do you feel like you don't fit perfectly? Do you feel like maybe you lean one way or the other and you definitely have people or parties or platforms you support and you're all good with that, but are there times where you feel like, ah, as a Christian, I just don't know that I perfectly fit this system. I don't know that I perfectly fit with this person. I, I, like, I like them, but I don't fully line up with them. Do you have a discomfort? Because if not, something has gone sideways with your faith. If you look at any politician and go, I'm 100% on board, I'm loyal to them, 100%, no questions asked, I'm all in with them, I have some concerns about where your loyalty lies. There should be a discomfort with all of us. Even if we're in politics, even if we're running for office, even if we're part of a party infrastructure, it doesn't matter. There should be some part of us that is, has a discomfort with the way politics are because we are assessing, we are viewing, we are critiquing the things of this nation through the lens of our faith. And why should that discomfort be there? Because Jesus tells us explicitly in the Gospel of John, my kingdom is not of this world. And so you should never feel like you fit perfectly here. If you ever feel like, I just don't feel like I fit, I feel homesick for somewhere else, I feel like I don't fit perfectly in this place, it's because you belong to a kingdom that is not of this world. And our perspective says we want to view our world, view our nation, view our politics through the lens of faith, not the other way around. Here's number five. Number five is affinity. Affinity is the question of where I belong. And here's what it is, that I have a special concern for Americans and I have a special concern for Christians. Affinity is the question, the ancient, old question of human beings. It's a profound one and it's this, where do I belong? Who are my people? Who's on my side? Whose side am I on? 
Where do I stand with? Who am I relating to? Who am I in community with? And the answer for the dual citizen is both. And that I have a special concern for Americans, for not just some Americans, but you'll see that pesky little word up there, all Americans. Which means you have a special concern and burden for the well-being of not just some Americans, but all of them. Not just the ones who think like you, vote like you, look like you, talk like you, eat like you, sing like you, dress like you, but all Americans. Even the ones who bother you. Even the ones who really bother you. Even the ones you would prefer not be Americans. You have this burden for them because you are part of this country. To be a citizen is to care for people all across our nation. And yet the same would be true for a citizen of heaven. That you would have a burden not just for some Christians, but for all Christians. And that would not just be Christians in our nation, but that would be Christians all around the world. That you would look at believers in Jesus all around the world and say, they were blood-bought by the blood of Jesus. I was the same. We are part of the family of God. God is our father. He is my brother. She is my sister. That's how we have a burden and concern for all Christians across the world. This church has had that burden for our entire history and over and over and over again have initiatives where we're trying to help the gospel go forward to support churches and church planners and pastors all over the world. In the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about a special initiative we have uh, to get bikes um, to a partner of ours in South Asia. Uh, and these bikes help church planners ride into unreached villages to plant churches and preach the gospel and baptize new believers. These bikes help them just get around this terrain uh, and get into these little villages. And so we said our goal at the very beginning was 350 bikes we wanted to send to this organization for church planners. That was going to cost us $50,000. And I'm proud to announce that over the last two weeks, $51,070.73 has come in, uh, which is just amazing. Thank you for your generosity. It's so cool. Like, we don't like go talk to people before this. We just kind of say, all right, Lord, what are you calling us to? And we felt like 50,000 was right. And God's like, let me throw in an extra grand, okay? Like, and it's just like I love how generous our God is through you and how you just respond. And so it's just a remarkable thing for us to be able to say, hey, here's this country in South Asia that most of us will never go to. And yet we are supporting the church. We're building into pastors because those are our people. Well, like just a few months ago, I got an opportunity to go to this nation we're talking about. Uh, I was part of a church service there. You'll see just some of the photos going through. I, I was just so moved deeply by these Christians who were gathering in what's really a tough geopolitical climate. Uh, we're there and we're worshiping with them. And after the service, they asked if anyone needed prayer. And so almost the entire room comes forward. Uh, and we're starting to pray over folks, over women and children and men. Uh, and I just found myself this week as I was thinking about what it means to care for Christians all over the world, that those are my people, I found myself thinking about men like this man. His face is blurred out for security, but we're looking at this going, man, I may never see this guy again, this side of glory. Most of you will never meet this individual in your entire life, but that's our people. That's part of our family. That man is part of our family. He is our brother in Christ, and in all of eternity, we will celebrate the goodness of God with believers from all around the world, most of whom we will never meet. So when we think about affinity, what it means to have citizenship in heaven, it means that we look at Christians all over the world, and we say, I'm with them, I'm for them, I'm on their side, I'm praying for them, I'm supporting them, I'm believing for them, and I want the best for them. Because the Christians all around the world are fellow citizens of heaven and part of the family of God. Number six, number six is this, that I'm honest about the beauty and brokenness of my nation and I'm honest about the beauty and brokenness of my life. I think part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to be honest about the condition of your own heart, soul, and life. Well, we're honest about the beauty, which means we're honest about how God uh, has shaped us, matured us, how the Holy Spirit of God has made us more like Jesus. 
We're honest about the ways we've grown, and for some of you, you have grown in Jesus over the last year or 10 years or 30 years. So we're honest about the beauty, but then we're also honest about the brokenness, right? Like part of what it means to follow Jesus is to identify if there's any sin or wicked way in me, and then to confess that before the Lord and turn from that. There's an honesty about the beauty and the brokenness. And the same goes for us as citizens of heaven, or citizens of this nation. If we're going to be citizens of this nation, we need to be honest about the beauty and the brokenness of this nation. To be honest about the beauty means to celebrate what is good and noble and true and beautiful about the United States of America. The opportunities that are here, the abundance that's here, the freedoms we have, uh, the ideals we have on our founding documents, the wonderful, beautiful things that we can celebrate about our nation. We want to be honest about the beauty of our nation, and then we also want to be honest about the brokenness of our nation. And that would be the brokenness past, present, and future. Like, we want to be a people who are just able to honestly talk about the things that have gone horribly wrong, the, the things that have been terrible, the atrocities that have happened, the ways we have fallen short of our founding ideals. Both of those should be present, not only in our own life, but as we assess this nation as citizens of it. Well, one of the verses I love to use when I think about how to assess my life or a nation or a family or a church or anything else is 1 Peter 5.8, which says to be alert and sober of sober mind. Be alert and fully sober. So to be alert is to be aware of what's going on. To be aware of what's happened, the good, the bad, and the ugly. To be alert of what's going on in this nation. To be alert of our history. We never want to be a Christian community here that just buries our head in the sand and pretend nothing's ever gone wrong and just deny anything. So we want to be alert. And at the same time, we want to be fully sober. And what does it mean to be fully sober? It means to be rational and thoughtful and careful as we think about and talk about our nation. So we don't fly off the handle making big proclamations that this is the worst ever or the only th bad thing that's ever happened. We don't say things about America that aren't true just because they're trendy and everyone's saying them. We become a people who are alert and fully sober. And like I mentioned before, like there is going to come some scandal in the next few days. You're going to hear something on the news. You're going to see something on your Twitter feed. You're going to see something pop up on your phone. And what do we want to do when the next scandal hits? We want to be alert. We want to be aware of what's going on but we also want to be fully sober so we don't become the Christians who are just outraged and angry and flying off the handle at everything that happened. We want to be a people who are alert and fully sober, alert to injustices, alert to brokenness, uh, alert to the things that have gone horribly wrong, but fully sober in how we analyze and move forward on that. I think that's the invitation for us as dual citizens. And then here's the final one. It is responsibility, and here's the responsibility, that I have a responsibility to the future of this nation and I have a responsibility to the future of the church. Uh, like, Lord willing, this nation will be around for a long, long time. For my children and my children's children and their children after that and their children after that. I want that to be true for them. So I want to vote. I, I want to live. I want to participate in the life of my community. I want to love my neighbors. I want to raise my kids to be responsible citizens. I want this nation to last. I want it to continue to flourish. I want it to grow into everything it could possibly be. And so I do that. I have a responsibility toward that as a citizen. And yet at the same time, I'm told I have a responsibility for the church, that I'm part of the family of God. The family of God is represented in his local church. And so I want to invest in the church. I want to be a part of the church. I'm going to give my time and my talent and my treasure. I want to invest financially. I want to invest with my talent. I want to invest with my, my, my resources. I want to do everything I can to build the church and to be a part of what God is doing in this world. Because when I'm really looking at both of these, 
my nation and the church, I'll tell you, again, I hope America stays along for a very long time and that my children's children's children enjoy the fruit and the prosperity here. Um, but I've read the last page of the Bible. It doesn't mention America, but the church stands forever. The church lasts forever. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church it was, is what lasts forever. And so we invest in it. We care for it. We build it up. We pass it off to the next generation because that's what God has called us to do as dual citizens of heaven and of earth. Again, in verse 20, Paul says that we are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of heaven. And then he goes on in verse, uh, the back half of verse 20 to say these words. He says, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now you'll see this sentence up on screen and you'll see a few words underlined. Lord, savior, and Christ. And when you hear those words, you probably associate those words with Jesus. In your mind, those words are used in a religious context. They're used to describe Jesus, this figure of Christianity. And yet what I need you to know is that the words Lord and the words Savior and the words Christ, which means Messiah, in the ancient context was not a religious term. Those terms were political terms. They were government terms. Like in other words, those words, when people initially heard them, they would not have thought of Jesus. They would have thought of something else. I want to give you an example here. It's called the Preen Calendar Inscription. And this is uh, when Caesar Augustus was born. This was a proclamation to the empire. And fortunately, they carved it into rock, so we still have it. Let me read for you a tiny little piece of it. Here's what it says. The providence which has ordered the whole of our life has ordained the most perfect consummation for human life, which is just a way of saying the providence that orders everything, which is God, like some kind of being, has ordained everything to give us a perfect human life by giving it to, and then hear this, to Caesar Augustus by sending him, as it were, as a savior for us and those who come after us. In other words, Caesar Augustus is born. He is to be the Roman emperor. And this proclamation in the ancient world carved into stone says, there is someone who is being born to us and he is a savior for us and for every generation who comes after. Later in the same inscription, it will announce that this message to the world is good news of great joy for all people. You recognize those words? Does that sound familiar to you? Like in other words, in the ancient world, they said there was someone who was born. He is a savior. This is good news. It's great joy. He's a savior not only for us, but for every generation of humans who will come after. And by referencing that, they were referencing the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus. And see, so here's the truth. The Roman empire claimed that salvation comes from the government. Salvation comes from the ruler. Salvation comes from the king. Salvation comes from the one who is seated on high. And the Bible makes a very different claim. The Bible claims that salvation comes from our God. The Bible claims that salvation comes not from the emperor, not from the government, not from the nation, not from the country. Salvation comes from our God. And that is what we hold to as a people. That is what we hold to as a people of God who are in this church. We become a church that says our salvation, the ultimate hope for our lives, for our generation and every generation to follow does not come from government. It comes from our God, the one who is seated on the throne that is above all other thrones. It goes on this way in verse 21. It says, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. So again, our salvation is coming from heaven where we are citizens. He is the Lord. He is the Savior, the Messiah, and the Christ. And then it says him, this Jesus, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. And I want you to see those underlined words, everything under his control. If you have a Bible with you, you want to circle, underline, highlight that word, everything. 
That's not hyperbole. It's not nice religious language. It's not something we're making up and just we put on a coffee cup and we smile. This is literally, actually true. Everything is under his control. And I need us to remember this, that God has got this. He's got this. He is seated on the throne of heaven. He has not fallen asleep. There is nothing that happens in the world that shocks or surprises or overwhelms him. He is quite capable and he's got this. And here's why we must remember this. It is July of 2023. And in the next year, we will approach 2024. It's an even year. And some of you are excited and some of you are dreading it. But there's a presidential election coming our way. And if you have not already heard this, you will begin to hear this very quickly, that this is the one. We need to elect this person. We need to elect that person. If they get elected, it's all over. If they get elected, it's all over. If this person wins, we all lose. If that person loses, we all win. This is what's going to happen. You may even hear this line, that this is the most important election of our lifetime. You ever heard that one before? You'll hear it over and over and over again. And they will tell you, and some of those voices will even be purportedly Christian voices who will tell you, if this person doesn't win, if this person loses, everything will fall apart. It will go off the rails. Everything will crumble. Everything will be out of control. And Calvary Community Church, don't listen. It's not true. The Lord our God is the sovereign king over our nation and every nation. That's what we hold to. That's where we stand. That's where we put our confidence. That is our foundation that we wanna vote, we wanna be engaged, we wanna care about what's going on in this nation, and yet there is a king of kings and a lord of lords, and whoever is elected president next fall, the God who is seated on the throne of heaven will not move over even an inch to say, why don't you join me here? That's not happening. So what do we do? We have a confidence in who our God is. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Everything is under his control. We pray, we work, we vote, we care about it. But ultimately, our confidence is not in who wins because God is in control. Verse 21 says this, that he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will become like his glorious body. This is the blessed hope of the church. This is what we look forward to. We're citizens of heaven. Our Savior's coming from there. He's got everything under control. And what's he gonna do? He's going to raise our bodies. And that is such better news. So much better news than what we're promised. What we're promised if we would just like labor for the future of our country and if we could just kind of maybe someday pass this law or get this person elected and maybe 20, 30 years from now there would be a supermajority that would, there are all these great things. And listen, those might be decent things. They may be good, right things that lead to justice and flourishing in this nation. And yet we need to be a people who set our hearts on something so much better. Like the blessed hope of the Christian church is not that someday all the policies you want in this nation will be passed. The blessed hope of the Christian church is found right here, that Jesus Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. He cracks the sky, he judges the, the living and the dead, and he raises our body to be like his glorious body, which if right now your body is breaking down, you say, amen, come Lord Jesus, right? Like that's what he's coming to do. That in the same way Jesus literally, physically, gloriously, eternally rose from the dead, the same exact thing is gonna happen to you that Jesus will return and your body will be literally, physically, gloriously, eternally raised from the dead. That's the hope of the church. That's the blessed hope we stand by. Like as we look toward the future, our hope is in something that only God can do as he transforms our lowly bodies to be like his glorious bodies. Now here's the reaction I tend to get when we say this. Sometimes we say this and we're like, yep, that's gonna happen. And the scripture's like, no, it's glorious. And we're like, that is a good thing. And it's like, no, it's glorious. And we're like, yeah, I agree. I affirm that the resurrection of the dead will happen. And we just kind of feel like, yeah, it's a good thing. 
And I think what happens for us is that's so hard for us to conceive that we think of it as a good thing, but we have no idea how much God is going to blow the doors off this thing. Like I was thinking of it this way, um, uh, an experience I had on 4th of July four years ago. Uh, four years ago, um, I, I was preaching at a camp, and here's what happened. So I, I, I preach sometimes for Hume Lake Christian camps up in the mountains and love that ministry and love my partnership with them, love what we get to do. And then one year they asked if instead of preaching in the mountains um, that I would get on a plane and go preach in Hawaii, which you're like, here I am, Lord, send me, right? <laughs> uh, yes, uh, and it's actually an amazing ministry with really difficult um, circumstances there that they're doing. It's just an incredible thing. So I went out and got to be a part of that gospel ministry for the week. I end preaching on July 3rd and spend the night and the next morning wake up and get on a plane around noon in Hawaii on July 4th. And as I'm flying in, I realize that my plane is set to land around 9.15 in Los Angeles. And so as I'm flying in on July 4th around 9 o'clock, I start to think, like, maybe I'll see some fireworks shows. I'm even sitting on the side of the plane where I think, maybe I'll see the Calvary fireworks show. Like, maybe I'll see that. Like, how exciting. Like, I think maybe I'll see it in the distance. I ask the flight attendant. She says, yeah, you know, I've seen it before. And so I get my phone out, and I'm ready to take a picture and maybe, like, send it to my wife. Like, look at this fireworks show. And then what ended up happening is I didn't take a picture. I took a nine-minute video. And I'm not going to bore you with the nine-minute video right now. But can I show you 17 seconds of this little video I took from the plane on July 4th of 2019, flying over Los Angeles. If you've flown in, you know you fly all the way across Los Angeles and all the way back to the airport. Here's the video I saw July 4th, 2019, right around 9 o'clock. awesome. Oh, man, so cool. And my favorite part of the video is that you know this, um, private fireworks are illegal in Los Angeles, right? <laughs> it's just so like, here it goes. Um, and I see that and I just go, oh, it's so beautiful. But then here's what I was thinking of this week. Like I was just thinking of the fact that when it comes to the resurrection, this glorious resurrection that is coming, just like I kind of thought, oh, I might see a fireworks show, and it's kind of cool, maybe I'll snap a picture. Like I had in my mind what it would be, but it blew my mind with how glorious it actually is. And child of God, let me be the one to remind you this morning that you might have in your mind how glorious that resurrection is going to be, but no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no heart could possibly fathom the good things that God has in store for those who love him. God is gonna blow the doors off this thing and it is going to be glorious. That is your future, that is your hope. So, so Paul is trying to get us to see we are citizens of heaven, and yes, we're citizens of earth, that God is coming, he is returning, our great salvation comes from him, he's got everything under control, we have something to look forward to, and then here's the verse we'll end with this morning, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends, he says, therefore, on the basis of the fact that we are citizens of heaven, on the basis of the fact that Jesus is coming from heaven to save us all, on the basis of the fact that he has everything under his control and he's gonna raise us gloriously from the dead, on the basis of all of that, he gives a command. And as it turns out, that command is actually the answer to the question we began this sermon with. And the question was this, how do we follow Jesus in our nation? How do we follow Jesus in our nation? And the answer Paul is gonna give might not blow you away, it might not seem like something brand new, it might not even sound that shocking, but it's simple and it's three words long. We stand firm. We stand right where we are. 
We stand firm. What does that mean? It means that when things change and move in our nation, we don't flail about and get angry and and rageful. We don't fly off the handle. We don't blow up at every little provocation. We don't get controlling and manipulative or triumphant. We don't become mean and cruel and vindictive and vicious. We simply be a people who stand firm right where we are. What do we stand firm upon? We stand firm upon the resurrected Jesus. We stand firm upon the revealed word of God in the scriptures. We stand firm on the fact that the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of our bones. And we stand firm upon the truth of the promises of scripture. That is the invitation for us as Christians. How do we follow Jesus in our nation? We stand firm exactly where God told us to stand. And we believe that God is the one who is going to make all things new. He's going to blow the doors off this thing. It is going to be glorious. And we stand firm waiting for God to do what only God can do. So here's the invitation for all of us. As you get to this Tuesday, as you travel places, as you go to a barbecue or a fireworks show or spend time with neighbors or in your community, wherever you go, man, the invitation is just this simple. It is for you to be a dual citizen of the United States of America and of heaven. It is for you to be a person who says, I love my nation, but I worship my God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this morning and thanks once again for your word. I pray that your word... um, minister to our hearts this morning as we think about what it means to be followers of Jesus right here in this nation you've given us. I thank you for this nation. I thank you for the freedoms we have. I thank you for the prosperity, the security, the good things that we've experienced as a nation. And I continue to just pray for our nation and pray for our leaders that it would go in a direction of your holiness, your righteousness, your justice, that you would be a God who reigns supreme over the hearts and minds of the people right here in this nation. So God, would you bless the United States of America? God, would you bless this church? Would you bless each of us as we move forward with our families that we would stand firm in who you are and what you are doing in our lives? And God, may our hope always and forever be in Jesus, the one who is seated in heaven and returning for us. We pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said... Amen.